Please remain standing, and as you do, take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 13, reading through verse 3 of chapter 4. Uh, The words can also be found on the pages of 4 and 5 in your bulletin. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. And as you do, please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, it is true, it is honest, It is life-giving, and God, we rest in it and we hope in it. And I pray that we would listen to it this morning, that we would be reminded of your promise that judgment is coming. But God, for we who fear you, for we who esteem your name, for we who are in Christ, you will remember us, and that is our hope. Would you be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Derek just don't think you're big enough to keep playing goalie. These were the words that began a conversation with my water polo coach the day after my freshman season ended. The season was a memorable one, but not for the right reasons, if you will, for all of the wrong reasons. I got my tooth knocked out the first day of after-school practice when I used my face instead of my hands to block a shot and it caused me to miss some time that season. Then I had some knee issues when I got back in the pool that lingered for the rest of the season that also put me out a game or two. And in the little playing time that I saw, my save percentage was simply not what I hoped it would be or good enough. Sure, I had the reaction time, the cat-like reflexes, you need to be a goalie, but the problem was I I lacked the reach. Even my near six-foot wingspan for a five foot seven uh, guy is pretty big, um, could not make up for the deficiency of my size. I'm still five foot seven. And so my coach sat me down at the end of the season to talk honestly about where we would go from here. And at the time, the words were not really easy to swallow. Because from the day I started playing water polo, late sixth grade, early seventh grade, all I did was trained to be goalie. I was gonna be goalie all the way through high school. My friends were the field players. I was the goalie. We had big dreams. I had never played the field. We had won with me as goalie. 
And to my coach's credit, he was acting in both the best interests of the team that he was responsible for and me. I was not going to help the team in the long run if I was going to be goalie. I could stay in goal, but barring a growth spurt, which never happened, my playing time would decrease and I would find myself just sitting the bench. If I moved to the field, there's a chance I could still sit, but I also could find that maybe some of my skills and even my lack of size could work to my advantage. So there was actually hope of more playing time if I made the transition. My coach was not being harsh or cruel. He was being truthful and honest. He was doing his job as a good coach. And thankfully, the decision ended up working out well for all parties involved. My high school career, personally, the career of my coach and our team ended up being extremely successful. So as we prepare to put the finishing touches on our study in the book of Malachi, we will wrap up with the last two verses next week. We have heard many words, whether they're words of complaint from the people or truthful, honest words of response from the Lord God. There have been no shortage of words. But here in these verses before us, the words escalate a little bit, if you will. The people are coming again and accusing God with their words, only this time it appears as though they're not holding anything back. They're bringing it all. The words of the people are honest, but harsh, even brutal. And just as he has throughout the entire book, the Lord responds with some honest words of his own. And like my coach, his words prove honest and hard, but good and true. And all the people needed to hear them. For in hearing these words from the Lord, there is warning for the wicked. And in hearing them, there is hope for those who repent, for those, as we looked at last week, who return to me, as God said in verse 7. And in them, we also see there is strength and joy for the righteous, for those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So wherever you find yourself here this morning on that spectrum, the Lord invites all of us, you and me, to come to hear these honest and truthful words from his mouth. And the words are essentially that the Lord has not forgotten judgment on the wicked, nor his promise to remember his people. I'll say that again. The Lord has not forgotten judgment on the wicked, nor his promise to remember his people. The words spoken in this last section of Malachi can easily be broken up into three speeches, if you will, or three scenes that center on words that are being said. The points are there for you in the bulletin. We'll look at first words of cruelty in verses 13 through 15. Then we'll look at words of comfort. And then finally, we'll look at words of certainty in those first three verses of chapter 4. But we start with the people's words, the words of cruelty. And we know these words are cruel because the Lord himself says, Your words have been hard against me. Other translations take this word hard to be arrogant or harsh. The Hebrew word is the same word that we find in Exodus 7 through 9, where we're told that the heart of Pharaoh is hard. It's arrogant, even as God is sending the plagues upon Egypt. We see that these words of the people are as hard as, the, as rocks flowing from hearts that are equally hard, refusing to listen to the word of God and refusing to heed his call to repent. 
And the words are also harsh because they are intentionally against me, is what God says. They're targeted at him, they're covenant-keeping, they're faithful God. They've put him in the crosshairs. And they're saying, you're the reason why we have all these problems. It's your fault, not ours. And we see the Lord actually comes back and repeats the cruel words that they have spoken against him. Even as the people refuse to admit it when they say, how have we spoken against you? We see the cruel word number one. Service is meaningless. They say it is vain to serve God. That word vain is noteworthy. It is the same word found in the third commandment. Do not take the Lord of the name of the Lord your God in vain. We know that commandment teaches us that God was to be regarded with glory and with honor that he was due. He was to be treated as the one worthy of, any, of everything. And the people come to him and say, serving you is worthy of nothing. It's hollow. It's empty. It is nothingness. What is the point of serving you? Then we get cruel word number two. Obedience is worthless. They say, what is the profit for us keeping his charge, his commandments, his words? In their minds, in their wicked minds, in their hard hearts, they think that obedience must lead to some kind of a payout. They should be experiencing plenty, not want. There should be fruitfulness in the land, fruitfulness of the womb, not barrenness. For them, following God's commandment had brought zero gain. There was no wealth, no fame, no comfort. There's only misery and hardship. And obviously, if you've been following along with our study in Malachi, we, we hear this charge is very ironic. Because Malachi has made it abundantly clear that the people have not been obedient. Following God's charge is anything but their strength. They had a complete lack of desire to live in accordance with God's command. Whatever charge they claim to be keeping, it is not the charge given in the law of God. But then we see the third cruel word. Repentance is useless. And this comes right off the heels of last week, where God comes to them and says, repent, turn to me. They say, or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts. What's the profit? Apparently, the people are convinced that they have returned to the Lord, and they have found him to be wanting. He hasn't fulfilled his end of the bargain and returned to them. Maybe they fasted. Who knows? Maybe they even brought sacrifices, the right sacrifices. Maybe they uttered a prayer or two. But whatever they did in their eyes, it was enough to warrant the fruit of their repentance. And because they didn't see this fruit, God had failed. And again, the irony is in the language a little bit, because that word mourning, it's only used here in Malachi, but the root actually means dark or darkness. So in a way, the people are saying, we're walking in mourning, but you can almost hear the Lord saying, we're walking in darkness before the Lord of hosts. Remain, they remain blind to their own sin, even as they claim to be repenting of it. They're in the dark. And then we see their final cruel word, that God is ultimately failing. 
They say in verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. They're, they're just making a confession. This is what we see. The arrogant are blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Again, this accusation sounds very similar to what we heard in verse 17 of chapter 2. When the people ask, where is the God of justice? And in many ways, verse 15 here in chapter 3 is, is a good summary of the entire case that the people have against the Lord. It's essentially that evil is prospering. And that blessing is for the arrogant. They look around and they say, Psalm 119.21, You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. They're saying, that's not the story of Israel. Because the righteous are suffering. We're the ones dealing with pestilence. We're the ones dealing with famine and suffering. And God is doing nothing about it. So why then should we follow him? Why then should we obey him? Why should we return to him? What is the point? And one commentator, as he summarizes these verses, these cruel words, puts it in one, blasphemy. The people have taken their attempted assassination of God's name and character to the level of blasphemy. And once again, as we've gone through this book, before we're tempted with rather boldness and confidence to say that brazen accusations like this would never come from our lips. We do need to be careful. Because how often can we be guilty of service only for a payout or maybe recognition? How often do we grumble and complain where we've been faithfully serving and no one has said anything about it? Or what ways do we put on a front of service or a front of obedience, hoping that God will somehow be duped like the people who are watching and thinking, what a great job they're doing, how faithful they are. And we too can easily convince ourselves of our own genuine repentance. I said a prayer. I felt bad. When the reality is our sin is still tucked away neatly into our pocket, just waiting to pull it out the next moment or we can convince ourselves that we have no sin at all or at least no sin that's that serious that we need to repent of it and as we saw a few weeks ago we can easily fall into the trap of cynicism and unbelief when God does not do things in the manner and the time frame that we may want we can start to think like Israel that he's not upholding his end of the bargain we can think that maybe he's fallen asleep at the wheel or jumped out of the car altogether. So unlike Israel, may we repent of the similar words of cruelty that we may have spoken and even repent of the ones that we haven't spoken, but they're spinning in our minds and being fed in our hearts or even lived out in our actions. May we be willing to ask, not an arrogant challenge like the people here, but in humble reliance, Lord, how have we spoken against you? And then turn from whatever it is that the Spirit of God exposes to us in that moment. But after these words of cruelty, though, we also hear these words of comfort in verses 16 through 18. And it should be noting that the comfort, noted that the comforting words here are not universal words for everybody. 
They have a specific and intended audience. As we read at the end of verse 16, those who feared God and esteemed his name. That's who should find comfort in these words. Those in the previous verses, those offering the cruel words, who refuse to repent but continue to speak these harsh words against the Lord, they should have no reason to find comfort here. They should expect something very different, which we will see here in a moment. But it's also noted, and it's interesting, that we find the people speaking these words and to whom the Lord speaks are an entirely new group, if you will, in the book of Malachi. Or at least a group that may have been in the background all along, but they've been silent. They are the remnant, if you will, the faithful individuals in the midst of unfaithful Israel. They're called those who feared the Lord. And we know at this point, Malachi has been challenging that there's very few, if any, who fear the Lord. We now find that there is in Israel a faithful remnant. Maybe they've always been there and silent in the background. Or maybe they've, they've heard the word and they've repented and they've turned. Malachi doesn't give us any details aside from the fact that they are those who feared the Lord. They stand in contrast to the rest of the nation. They honor the Lord. They fear his name just as the people as a whole have not. And even in the fact of their existence, we should take comfort. Because in their existence, in their presence here at this moment, we get a glimpse of God's promise never to abandon his people. He will always preserve for himself a faithful remnant. No matter how bad the circumstances may be, God will keep his people. But these particular people, notice they're talking in verse 16. They're speaking to one another. They're the ones who are providing this initial words, these initial words of comfort. Sadly, we have no idea of what they're saying. All we know is that they spoke. We can only imagine or hypothesize the conversation. It, it could have been lament. Maybe even lament similar to what the wicked have just expressed. Maybe a psalm like Psalm 73 is on their tongues. Where the psalmist struggles with things like the prosperity of the wicked. Where he struggles with all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Sounds very similar to the wicked. But at the end of that psalm, the psalmist closes with, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Maybe that's what they're speaking to one another. Maybe it's not lament at all, but it's joyful worship. It's thanksgiving. It's encouragement. Whatever, it is, whatever they're saying, the scholars, as you read, are, are agreed upon that it is consumed with and occupied by the Lord, his name, his glory, and his honor. The speech that they're, they're speaking to one another, it's reflecting a passion and a zeal for God. And it's because of their passion and their zeal that God now pays attention. He listens to them and he responds which is a stark contrast to what the Lord is doing to the prayers and the petitions of his people at large. Where in chapters 1 and 2, we, we hear the Lord say, I'm not going to accept. I'm not going to listen. So while the faithless could expect more of the same, the faithful could expect the Lord to hear their words and respond. They could expect to experience what the psalm, psalmist wrote in Psalm 73 at the very beginning. 
that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so we can allow this this mysterious and, and unknown conversation going on between saints to challenge our words that we speak with one another. Are we more likely to encourage one another or complain to each other? Do our words reflect as we speak with one another and to one another a zeal for God and his name? Or is it rather a zeal for our own interests and our own passions? Do we speak, as one commentator writes, intelligently and edifyingly to one another for the increasing and improving of faith and holiness? Because that's what we see the faithful doing as they speak to one another here. And such speech and such words are a great comfort to us. But the second and the most profound words of comfort, if you will, are not from the mouths of the saints, but they're from the mouth of the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 17. As he listens to their conversation, the Lord interjects his own conversation in the middle of it. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make my treasured possessions, possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We see that the Lord answers faithfully, not only by speaking these words, but taking this book of remembrance and opening it. And then as he's opening it, he's speaking these hope-filled and comforting words. And they're familiar words. They come all the way back at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Where the Lord tells his people, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And these are also the words found in Psalm 135, 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. God is not saying anything new here but rather confirming what he has always said from the very beginning. You are mine. You belong to me. You are my possession. My treasured possession. And this book of remembrance emphasizes their belonging. No, God doesn't need a book to remember his people. It's not like he opens the book and is like, oh, is that person in here? Hmm, That's interesting. I did not expect that. No, the the names are cemented in the book. They confirm that God knows his people and always knows his people. He will never forget them. Because each one of their names is recorded in ink. This is not the nice and naughty list of Santa Claus where a kid is on it one year and then the next year he's on a different list. It's fixed. It's not going to change. This book of remembrance is the same book that we see opened in the last day. In Revelation 21. And the names we find there are the names of those who are resting in, fearing the Lord. And they're the ones who can count on his promise, who can find these words to be a word of comfort. Who can trust that God is going to spare them as his son and not treat them as a servant, as a mere servant. They belong to him as sons. He's not going to treat them as they deserve, but he's going to treat them like the father that we know in Luke 15, who runs out to meet his son, embraces him with hugs and kisses and throws his cloak on him and then holds a party to rejoice over him. 
Brothers and sisters, these words are all the words of comfort we could ever need. When the Lord looks at you, when the Lord looks at me, he joyfully says, they are mine. When he gazes upon you, his gaze is that of a loving father whose heart is warm and compassionate and filled with delight. He's a father who looks upon his son. He doesn't look on you with anger and disappointment. So let such comforting words encourage you and fill you with hope and joy this morning. No, the reality of God saying you are mine is not based on anything about you. It's not based on anything you've done or anything you haven't done. Because you, like me, continue to fail over and over and over again. We don't fear the Lord as we should. We don't esteem his name. But there is one, the faithful remnant, who does. And it is because of him and his work that your name is written in the book of God's remembrance. And not only written there, but as Isaiah 49 looks forward, says your names are actually engraved on the palms of my hand. In Jesus Christ, you and I are made the treasured possession of God. In Christ, you and I are spared and treated as sons. In you, he looks at us and says, you are mine. Find great comfort in these words. Let them encourage you because they rest in not anything that you've done, but they rest in what Christ has done for you. But the last words now we see as, as we transition again from words of comfort are to words of certain, certainty, again from the mouth of the Lord. Now in no way am I suggesting that the words of comfort are something less than certain. Don't think that those words I just went through are not certain. They are certain, but they're also comforting. I divided them solely because every sermon needs three points, and if you don't have three points, it doesn't count. But, but in all seriousness, thanks for that amen, splitting these into two sections still makes great sense, just given the way that the Lord unfolds the speech here. Because verse 18 almost serves as a transition between 17 and 19. Because what is it exactly that's going to display the distinction between the wicked and the righteous? When will both the fearing and the fearless see this distinction? They'll see it on the day that is coming. A day that is certain, a day that is fixed, a day that is promised. And what will this day look like? What is it going to entail? And while there are a, a lot of pictures crammed into three verses to describe this day, it essentially boils down to two certainties. And the first is certain judgment on the wicked. Hear what the Lord says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And some of this sounds familiar, again, or similar to what we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where, where we hear about heat, where we hear about judgments, where we see a distinction clearly made between the good and the evil. But the chief difference between then and now is, is the point of reference. 
Because the beginning of chapter 3 ultimately pointed ahead to that first advent of Christ. Where he would come declaring the judgment of God against Israel's continued apostasy and idolatry. Where he would come and bear the judgment of God's wrath against sin upon himself. And by doing that, he would purify for himself a people who would offer true worship. But that word of judgment that he would come and declare against Israel, we see in AD 70, came finally in the destruction of the temple. That was Israel's proof that judgment had been rendered. The temple had been destroyed, leveled to the ground. But here in chapter 4, the picture is different. There is no refining anymore. There is no call to repentance anymore. There's only fire. That's how the day is described. I don't know if most of you are, are aware, but I'm sure we've all heard or seen pictures of the Dixie fire that is continuing to rage even today. It's, it's out west in, in California and some of the other western states, but it's been burning for nearly two months. It scorched close to, as of Saturday morning, 900,000 acres. And it is now the third largest, which, what does the first and second largest look like? The third largest fire in California history, and it still only sits at 55% contained. Everything that it has touched has disintegrated it. It has disintegrated everything it's touched. It's rendered it to dust and ash, or for some of those things that are a little bit stronger, to charred pieces. Cars have melted. Houses have been rendered nothing. The devastation, the, the destruction has been complete for the areas where that fire has touched. And still, the Dixie fire will not hold a candle to the fire coming for the wicked on that day. The picture here in Malachi is far bleaker than a terrible fire raging over a almost a million acres in the western part of this country. That word stubble is the word that after the grain has been threshed, all of it is gathered. It's this fine dust-like material that as soon as it goes into the furnace, it evaporates and burns up almost instantly. And then there's that picture of the absence of root or branch. It depicts complete destruction. Everything evil, everything wicked is going to be consumed and nothing will be left over. And in case we might think, well, Malachi is, you know, it's being a little strong here. We have the New Testament, which confirms such an understanding. 2 Peter 3.10 calls the day, this day, the day of the Lord will come and the heavenly bodies, he, he pans out, if you will, will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. And Jesus even spoke of this day. Most extensively in Matthew 24 and 25, where he likened it to a day of separation, a day of fire, and a day of weeping for the wicked. This day is not a possibility. It's not conditional. The only thing holding it back is the patience and plan of God. It is coming, and certainly so. And so for those, if you are here this morning or listening through our live stream, if you are outside of Christ, heed the warning that is implicit here in the book of Malachi. Turn to faith in Christ today. Your church attendance, if you've grown up in the church, not going to spare you. Neither will your good works. 
your best intentions, or your general decency as a human being. Only in Christ will you find mercy. Will you find being spared as sons? Because only in Christ will you find that the judgment that you deserve has been born for you and for all those who place their faith in him. But for those of us in Christ, and we'll look at this a little bit more next week, the certainty of God's judgment against the wicked should light a fire in us as well. Without seeking to be controversial or in any way dismissive of what is going on, there is a far greater problem in our country and the world than COVID. It is not what man should fear most. There is also a far greater disaster than what is going on in the halls of Washington between all the parties. And yet, how quick are we to talk, to tweet, to post nonstop about those matters, all the while we are silent about the certain judgment of God against the wicked? May we be faithful to warn them. May we be bold enough to tell them to flee to Christ, even if they hate us for doing it. Because judgment is certain. And we would desire to see all turn and flee to Christ in salvation. I have a fear that when this pandemic ultimately ends, whenever that might be, that we the church may look back and see this as a wasted opportunity. Because the reality of death and the coming of death has been front and center for almost a year now. And sadly, we have adopted and assumed much of the culture's posture that death is the worst thing. Death is not the worst thing. Judgment without Christ is the worst thing. So let us be faithful to warn of judgment that is coming by telling people of the goodness and the grace of God extended in Jesus Christ. But the second word of certainty that we see is salvation for the righteous. What we should tell people to flee to. God says in verse 2, But for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the good news in the midst of judgment, certain judgment. And it is the answer to the wicked's question in verse 2. What's the profit in obeying the Lord, in following his charge, in repentance, in fearing his name? It's here. There is an immense treasure. It's healing, it's restoration, it's joy, it's victory. For the rest of time. It is the internal enjoyment when the rays of God's righteousness touch and radiate over every square inch of creation. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more things in secret. But all will be touched and basking in the light of his righteousness. It is the day that Tolkien coined when everything sad will come untrue. Where we'll be leaping like animals that have been pent up all day and are finally allowed to be set free and to roam free 
where there'll be feasting and joy as we're going to get a foretaste of here at the table. And we're going to sing about in our closing hymn. And where we'll declare to one another great shouts of victory as the saints through all the ages walk in triumph behind our risen and glorified Savior. When the battle that we sung of earlier this morning against Satan and death will be over. When the battle against sin, both within and without, will be finished. The battle against wickedness in all its horrific forms will be vanquished. When the battles against pain and disease and sickness will be remembered no more. Brothers and sisters, these are the honest and certain words of our hope. The hope that has been won for us in Jesus Christ our Savior. It is these words that will enable us to endure when the battle is most severe. It is these words that are enabling our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan and North Korea and China to endure. It is these words that give us great comfort. These words that call us to persevere in whatever we're going to face in this country, whether it gets better or worse or stays the same. These words supply us with joy. They give us something to look forward to beyond our wildest dreams. And they give us a reason to continue fearing and honoring the name of the Lord and walking in faithfulness to him. So may we hold fast to these words even as we await that certain and fixed and promised day. I began with the honest words this morning of my coach, spoken, it's hard to believe now, 20 years ago. While certainly beneficial to me at the time, if I were to go back and look at those words or apply them now, they would serve me nothing. They're just a fond memory. They would be unable to offer me more than just a smile or a, that was a good time. But brothers and sisters, the honest words of the Lord here, as well as the honest words of the Lord in all of scripture, eclipse those of my high school coach. I can run back to these honest words on days of sorrow and days of joy. I can lean on them in hard seasons or seasons of ease. I can also find in them the motivation, the passion, and the zeal that I need to live as I await that glorious day when Christ returns. And the same goes for each of you. Trust in these words. Remind yourself of them often. Talk to each other about them often and live in light of them. The Lord has not forgotten judgment on the wicked, nor his promise to remember his people. Let us pray. God, we give you great thanks. We are in awe of your mercy and your grace that you look upon us, your people in Christ, and you declare boldly and joyfully that they are mine. And God, because you, we are yours, there is a salvation waiting for us an inheritance that is ours, as we read earlier, imperishable, unfading, kept for us. God, may it give us all the hope and the comfort that we need. May it give us all the motivation and the zeal and the passion that we need to live for your name, to cry out to a lost and dark world, battling evil and wickedness, that judgment is coming, but there is a refuge and it is found in Christ Jesus. Be glorified in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.